Nah, I'm fucking with you. No, but in reality, though, uh, welcome back. I'm happy to be here. Um, just want to give you guys some quick updates before we get into the uh, main spiel. So, as always, we go back into the Ukraine war. Um, there have been a lot of events which have happened within the past, let's say, week. Um, and it's important that we go over them. So... Uh, since Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, and again, for those that you don't know, the Russians uh, celebrate on the Julian calendar, or is it the Gregorian? I'm not sure, but there's this one that's an older one, and so the Christmas Day for Orthodox is offset, and Christmas Day for the West, for the Latin West, is on the 25th of December, right? But it's on the also secular 25th of December, and so... <clears throat> So, this is kind of a veiled political message because uh, a, there's this massive ballistic missile strike that happened on Christmas Day for the West. Um, however, the undertone is that it was a, a gift for um, a demoralization gift for those that are NATO aligned who are fighting in the Ukraine uh, who celebrate Christmas on that day and ultimately. Um, you know, are attacked on that most quote-unquote special day. And so that's that's a very interesting thing that happened. Um, and just further, to go further into it, um, there's an artillery round shortage in the West. The NATO stockpiles from the Cold War, and, and believe me, uh, countries that are superpowers keep stockpiles of weapons. And uh, the same is true for the United States. In fact, I remember uh, when I was in that when, like, a, a piece of material was dermoed, right? Sometimes it was melted down. Sometimes it was sold as surplus. Other times, most often the case, uh, they would just store it. And so there's there are massive underground warehouses in the United States filled, filled with, like, like Cold War surplus and i mean like sexy surplus like m14s type sexy and so um that's part of the reason why you saw a shipment of m14s and ukrainian soldiers fighting with the m14 for a little bit there um because we broke into those stockpiles so the issue is though however the west has no real industrial base it kind of self-owned itself through globalization and so what ended up happening is that our rivals are in control of the very um you know production line that we need for creating munitions uh for instance in china uh china 
they have the raw material and the manufacturing ca capacity to sell us wholesale artillery shells, etc., to our specification. Now they operate on the 152 millimeter, uh, which is the Soviet pattern, but we operate on the 155, obviously as NATO pattern. Um, but the main issue is here: the supply chain is vulnerable, and now we start to see uh, that China's reluctant to. Um, supply us, the United States at least, or the occupied government with munition rounds. And so that's a very interesting uh, paradigm to be in because um, the globalists and the neocons are kind of like hitting their foreheads on the head because they want to go to war and there's just no, there's just no, you know, manufacturing base to, uh, to back that up. So John Bolton feels like an idiot. But in any case, moving on. Uh, so I think a, a lot of the things that people don't understand is that um, for modern warfare, our doctrine hasn't really improved since the 1980s. The only thing that really has changed significantly is obviously the advent of the internet and the advent of drones and an introduction of both into the battle space. Um, for the drones, it's a little bit overhyped. It's not a Wunderwaffe, you know, it's not a wonder weapon. It's not a fucking kill shot. In fact, um, I remember reading during the Azerbaijan-Armenian -Arma War, the UAVs provided the, the Azerbaijani um, military a significant edge. However, it also suffered significant losses. In fact, in the Ukrainian war, there's a 90% loss ratio for uh, deployed UAVs. And so you see all those videos on, like, Intel Slava or Ukraine, like, you know, different Ukrainian NATO sources. Those forward observers usually get shot while taking those videos, and they, they get put down. They don't really have um, a lot of efficacy for you know, double, double missions, etc. But, any case, uh, I think it's important to go on to this next level here, which is the operation in Solodar. Solodar is this town, for those of you that don't know, that's situated northeast of Bahmut. Now, Bahmut is the main operational goal, right? And the operation in Solidar is what's called a shaping operation. So if you can think about chess, for instance. In chess, sometimes you take pieces or you position certain pieces, not because those pieces will, you know, uh, checkmate will be the function of checkmate on the board, but because they shape the circumstance to which checkmate occurs. And tangentially, by the way, this is why I harp so hard on doing, you know, chess. It's, it's an important mind game. It gets you thinking in the right direction. It makes you understand strategically and operationally um, in a real-world sense. But either way, so um, the from what I have gathered, and it's important to note that, like, Russian sources always lie and NATO sources give damned lies. And so it's important to note that um, 
just recently, I think it was the 13th of January, uh, it was confirmed that Solidar has fallen, but it has not. Um, there are certain outskirts that are still fighting back. However, the, there's a very interesting thing that happened, which, if you can imagine, it was surrounded on three sides, and it was a bulge. And then when the Wagner group uh, and its assault divisions, or excuse me, assault teams, went in through the front, um, a VDV element was parachuted and inserted behind, and so cut off and created a how do you say, a Stalingrad situation, right? It's an envelopment. And, um, I mean, looking through the news today, it seems that the majority of the town has fallen, although I will wait for, you know, future information. I don't like giving false information or whatever. It's annoying as hell. It's part of the reason why I'm doing this, because I, I hate the, the lying on both sides. I just want to know the truth, right? But as they say, the first casualty war in war is the truth, isn't it? Doesn't matter. Point being is this. Um, you know, uh, the Russians have uncovered a number of fields of dead Ukrainians. And it's very tragic and heart-wrenching. I mean, like, there are videos, of course, of Russians who have, like, fallen by literally the hundreds. I remember seeing this, like... Uh, this artillery spotter UAV observing a field where, like, tens of Russian soldiers uh, who look... They look like the uh, Bakhmut... Uh, it, it's... Uh, I forgot what it's called. The damn... Not the penitentiary battalion. The penal battalions. There you go. Thank you. So uh, there's been a lot of news about, like, for instance, uh, convicts and stuff serving in the Wagner military sphere. Um, but the reason why they do that is because they serve as the first wave. And basically they approach an objective. And they're used as uh, to draw Ukrainian fire. So that way when Ukrainians fire, the Russians, what they end up doing is counter-battery fire. And so they're kind of used as bait, human bait, which is really unfortunate, um, are given minimal supplies and minim minimal munitions, minimal armament to take ostensibly an objective, but reality is they're just human pawns. Now... Uh, talking about the video coming out of Solidar. So because of the fact that it was surrounded, they weren't able to get their wounded or their, um, you know, killed out. Um, and so what ended up happening was they had huge... It's assault... So also, this huge city is called... is a salt mine. And so they kept the majority of their bodies in a salt uh, deposit. And I don't know, it was spooky. It was spooky how many dead Ukrainians there were, or at least Ukrainian fighters there were, and it was just unfortunate, um, but dang. I, I don't know, you guys gotta see it. it it's uh, I'll probably link a, a, a connection in the video below. It'll take you to Telegram, and I'll show you what I mean, but it's pretty incredible what modern war can do. Just absolutely kill you. But without further ado, it seems as though the modern 
battlefield, um, it seems that artillery is still king. Infantry is, of course, queen of the battle. It fixes the enemy, but it seems that on the you know, Russian side, the way that the Russians are eliminating threats is by destruction by fires, right? They destroy by fires. And so, also, modern combat dynamics seem to lend itself to this idea where uh, there's an emphasis on mobility and a concentration of effects, right? What's an effect? Effect is like artillery strikes, um, it's also supply, it's logistical. Um, throughput if that makes sense so like it's not just about having your team on the front but it's also having all the tandem different elements working together in synchronicity towards your objective now of course uh, I mean where was I ah boom there we go so as you saw like you know the combat dynamic is that being spaced out is the way to go. Um, it seems that because of how prominent and powerful munitions and smart munitions are, spacing out your battle group is important because what ends up happening is it also makes your target a less juicy target and less worthwhile to expend that munition. So you have to think from an operational and strategic level, um, or at least an operational level, the urgency with which a target is given, you know, precedent for logistical use. So, for instance, the the utility of selling, you know, sending a 152 millimeter shell downrange to kill the enemy, um, that's measured against how many enemy you can kill. What is it worth? You know, is it? Are you attacking? you know, a howitzer emplacement of the M777 American howitzers? Are you are you doing counter-battery fire, which is extremely worth it? This way you deny the enemy superiority of fires, which the Russians already have a superiority over. Um, or is it, you know, just a ragtag group of men, from which case that you can attack with mortars or small arms fire and finish that ob objective? Now... I'm not going to get too deep into it. I've actually written up a report, who, which I will share with you in the future, about the Russian-Ukrainian war and a year in review as far as the innovations, what's in, what's not, what's part of the technique of warfare now, what's been introduced, what has worked, what hasn't, experiments that have happened, etc. And this will all be coming from the British Military Institute um, written report, so it's a NATO-aligned report. I think it's important, by the way, uh, when reporting on war, uh, it's very easy to get carried away with a bias, right? Um, in, in the Russia-Ukrainian war, there are a lot of passions that happen, and I have, and that's because people are invested on one side winning or the other side winning. And now, for myself, I am indifferent as to who wins. And so I'm afforded a special, um, I wouldn't say ability, a special circumstance, let's say, of a third-person perspective, which the two fighters in the arena do not have. Um, so I will be going over that. 
The MOD also has released uh, a document. Obviously, the Ministry of Defense of Russia is very secretive, and it doesn't allow mill podcasters and mill bloggers to uh, reveal too much about Russian operations. But I'll do my best to parse the truth and the falsity of their reports and anything good to share for modern combat. In any case, thanks for being back. This is a transmission with General Lance and Sergeant Barnes. This is Lance's Legion. Gentlemen, gentlemen, settle down, settle down. So, a lot of the things happening in Russia, Ukraine, to us, and a lot of Western observers, they don't understand. 
They don't understand because they believe that the Russians losing a lot of men, a lot of resources, a lot of hardware, that it's uh, it's basically sim is symptomatic of a system breaking down. Now, that may be true in the West, but the East, and especially these ex-Soviet countries, have a far different philosophy uh, from us in warfare, in their martial culture, etc., and what necessarily constitutes loss, you know, catastrophic loss, vice, acceptable loss. And so, you know, it's important to revisit history because history is the sequence of events which have placed us in the location we are now, right? Um, and you have to remember that the Russian Federation used to be the core of the Soviet Union. And the core of the Soviet Union, you know, it was hinged on the idea of Marxist-Leninism and part of that idea, inherent in that idea, is the idea of world revolution. Now, wait, stand by, I gotta take a drink, hold on. Ah, okay, cool. I'm, I'm very serious that I drink during all these things, so... Anyway, remember, this world revolution turned out to be... have, have its effects felt in a certain way, and that way was militarism and the austerity of communism, whether or not they kind of intended it to be that way or it just panned out that way, doesn't matter. What ends up hap what, what, what does matter is what happened, right? And so, in a way, the Soviet Union was very much a Spartan kind of state. You know, everyone lived in a, a flat slash apartment. Um, you know, in small and squalid conditions, they were used to a, a tough and difficult life. Uh, usually, people, even people that were in the Politburo or high up, they didn't really have um, a disparity in wealth or power. Well, they had a disparity in power, that's for sure, but they had a disparity in <clears throat> wealth and apartments and luxuries uh, only in increment and not as a matter of, uh, I don't know, you know, playing fields here. And so even the richest son of whoever still lived in a flat. He didn't really have a car. It's unlikely. Um, you know, he still did his conscription and military service. He might have gotten premier postings. He might have gotten something a little bit better. But at the end of the day, that's not really the same thing as here in the West, where you have princes with unfathomable wealth, and then, you know, the poor who were scraping by or something, and I'm not excusing, I hate communism, but I think it's important that you give yourself context to this, right? <clears throat> now, I remember reading this book, I actually have it right here, uh, by Viktor Suvorov, uh, Inside the Soviet Army, and it explains a lot as far as what the Soviet military lifestyle is, its doctrine, its ideas, and um, there's a lot of commentary in the West. I remember I listened to these podcasts from different military sources, from the Austrian government, from the British government, but I also listened to this one from the United States Marine Corps um, War College, and it has this 
you know, it has this podcast by, you know, it's called Brute Something or Other. Um, and basically, it's an effeminate, like, Semitic guy, you know, who is a quote-unquote advisor or whatever, civilian advisor. And then you're run by these gullible idiots like majors and uh, middle rank individuals who have no idea what they're talking about and they kind of defer all their opinions and thinking to this you know shittlebelly belly guy that obviously has a bone to pick with Russia from an emotional perspective and isn't able to have an objective observation of their military culture and that's the thing in war you want to you don't want to overestimate your enemy and you don't want to underestimate your enemy and in both cases, America has the distinct and unique ability to do both. It's insane, but, you know, it is what it is. Either way, the reason why... There, there's a lot of chatter about how Russia has no regard for life or whatever, as if life is existence itself is all that in a bag of chips. As you can see, you can live 80 years of your life and never have lived one day, Right? Here, I believe that, you know, to live a day as a lion is better to live than... It's better to have lived a day as a lion than a thousand years as a goat, right? Um, now, going back, why is it the case that the Russians have this ethos? That comes from the Soviet period. That comes from the conscription service. So, in Russia, in the Soviet Union... There is this service, this conscription that you have to do. Everyone does it. And effectively, you do it for two years and you get out. But it's the experience in that service as an enlisted member, the discipline and iron will that is instilled in you as a Soviet soldier that changes you. And that's that's the reason why people did conscription. It, it Yes, it helps sometimes with you know, national defense. But as we're seeing now, uh, conscript forces tend to be less effective than regular trained professional soldiers, right? But there's still a utility to having a conscript service. Why? Because A, obviously it has military technical uh, applications, which in a time of war need is perfect. You have a whole trained populace of adequately trained individuals ready to on the drop of a dime, mobilize and fight, which is what the Russians have done. But most importantly, the most important thing is that it instills um, qualitative and psychological values in the conscript, you know, in the citizen body that helps the nation as a whole over time. So it's an investment in their future. It's an investment in their education, etc. A true education. Because a citizen isn't a citizen unless he is able to fight. Because that is the essence of a state. Remember, the first states were founded by roaming war bands. And in a way, create a society that clamored on to the protection of this war band. So the essence of every state, of every government, has always been force and violence. And so the citizen body must be capable of that to exercise any authority, or at least legitimately so, because obviously you're invested in that. Look at how many guys are like, you know, Soviet Union enthusiasts in, in Russia, you know what I mean? 
there's tons of Soviet guys, and, and Putin is one of them, and part of the reason why is because of this very um, conscript service. It's a formative period of people's lives. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds as far as, like, its pros and cons. You're just going to accept that it is the good thing. Now, <clears throat> obviously, this is not something unique to communist countries. In fact, they've levied this from previous examples. Obviously, ancient Sparta is probably the most akin service, but Rome is as well. Um, and if you want any futuristic, plausible future for the United States, it's found itself in these, uh, the book Starship Troopers by Heinlein. I really, really highly recommend it. Don't read it for the science fiction bullshit. Just read it for the concept. Read it for what it means. Why is it that a citizen, a citizen, the only person that can exercise his, his right, his willpower upon the government and policy are those that have earned it, right? Here in the United States, things are falling apart because there's a bunch of people that exercise power that aren't even Americans. They're not invested. They don't care. They use it as a, a cheap whore. It's a bordello for them. And that's why few of us Americans who have given a lot to this country, who come from this country, feel obviously under attack, under occupation by foreigners, by people that want to destroy your your way of life, that want to destroy your community, their, your culture, etc. And this is the sole you know, criticism I have of the Anglo-Saxon ethos, which is the laissez-faire attitude of do as you will, have the freedom, you know, to speech, blah, blah, blah. Well, like, the, the double-edged, it's a double-edged sword, because what ends up happening is that you afford people that your enemies room to operate, room to embed themselves and maneuver against you and kill you. And it might not happen in your generation, but it will happen in the coming generations, too. So, like, negligence is also a vice. And that's something us Americans, we have to understand, accept, and then figure out a plan how to maneuver around that. And I'll give you an example and a suggestion at the end of the segment. Um, just give me a second just to parlay with you about this uh, conscript service. So without further ado, let's talk about Viktor Sovorov, specifically the man that wrote this book, just to ha so you have it in the back of your mind. He was an ex-GRU agent. What is the GRU? The GRU is military intelligence, and military intelligence, what they do is they focus on intelligence that is military-like related, obviously, duh, uh, but the issue is that people don't understand that, for instance, the CIA often affects things on a strategic level, and which is why they're integrated with SEAL Team 6, for instance, right, to have strategic goals which they levy different capacities selectively and on their basis, right? But GRU and are, is a lower echelon operational level intelligence service. So what that means is in the United States, for instance, we have military intelligence. Military intelligence at that level focuses on the operational level. And so when you see, for instance, in Russia, the campaign, you see um, deep operatives working behind enemy lines, sabotaging, um, you know, causing ruckuses, uh, basically fomenting unrest. That's GRU. Now, without further ado, 
basically he defected to the West in 1985 because obviously communism is terrible, as is liberalism, by the way. I wonder what that leaves, huh? Wink, wink. Anyway, point being is he defects to the West and he writes a series of books. One of these books is his experience in the Soviet army. It's different, like, how it's organized, how it's formed, how it's trained, the military culture, the attitudes, etc. And so he gives, like, concrete examples of what it is like on the inside, because up until then it was a complete mystery to the West, and it continues to be. I think the, the most historically and culturally illiterate people come from the United States. It's really crazy, like, it, just absolute ignorance. And it's funny, the most ignorant people tend to be the liberals who say that the, the hillbillies are the ignorant ones, but they're just, liberals are just hicks who are shitlips. It's crazy that it, it works that way, but they're often the least educated and the least, how do you say, chauvinistic, or excuse me, most chauvinistic compared to everyone else in the West. I mean, it is what it is, but oh, just don't even get me started. But in any case, uh, let's see here. Ba -da -ba 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 -ba. Okay, so obviously he has a certain bias, and uh, he wrote these series of books as a way to make a living, and his audience was mainly the military establishment in the West, NATO. In fact, the, the forward of his book is written by a major general in the British Army. Now, you know, you have to bear this in mind, and a lot of this is a critique of the, the communist, Marxist-Leninist uh, lifestyle, which you should read it for that basis, but I've chosen select um, select passages to give you an inside look on what a conscript lifestyle is and something that we want to emulate. Now, continuing on, basically, we start here with the conscript soldier and how he is processed, right? So how it begins, how it trains, and how it ends, right? And so I'll go ahead and read some passages for you about the conscript soldier and then you kind of just listen to it, get a vibe for it and then we'll move section to section and finally finish there. So, one second. Gotta do this thing. Ba -da -ba -ba. Dude, I hate finding pages. Bada bing. Here we go. So, the column of recruits finally reaches the division to which it has been allocated. The thousands of hushed, rather frightened youths leave the train at a station surrounded by barbed wire. Their heads are quickly shaven. They are driven through a cold bath. Their filthy rags are burned on huge fires. They are issued with crumpled greatcoats, tunics, and trousers that are too large or too small, squeaky boots, and belts. With that first grading process, it's completed. It does not occur to any of them that each of them has already been assessed, taking into account his political reliability, his family's criminal record, or the absence of one, participation or failure to participate in communist mass meetings, his height and physical and mental development. All these factors have been taken into account in grading him as category 0, 1, 2, and so forth, and then allocating to a subcategory of one of those, of one of those groups. There will be no more than 10 category 0 soldiers in a whole motor rifle division. 
They will go to the 8th Department of the Divisional Staff. In each heat take, there are at least two or three of them who will replace others who are being demobilized and who will themselves join the reserve. They have no idea that they are in a particular category or that files exist on them which have long ago been checked and passed by the KGB. Category 1 soldiers are snapped up by the Divisional Rocket or Reconnaissance Battalions or by the Regimental Reconnaissance Companies. Category 2. Soldiers are those who are able to understand and to work with complicated math mathematical formulae. They are grabbed by fire control batteries of the Artillery Regiment, of the Anti-Aircraft Rocket Regiment, and of the self-propelled artillery battalions of the motor rifle and tank regiments. And then there are soldiers of my own arm and service, the tank crews, category 6, which, by the way, this is not in the book, um, in, the, uh, in Soviet pattern tanks, the inside quarters are so small that they actually select for men who are of small stature, like physically speaking, they're, so, they're, they're short. Um, because that's, those are the only ones that are able to climb into it, function in it, and if necessary, escape. So, obviously, assuming that Suvorov is a short fella in the T-72. Now, back to the text. Category 6, thanks to the swine who do the planning and the general staff, but nothing can be done about that. The army is enormous, and bright soldiers are in demand everywhere. Everyone is after the strong, brave, and healthy ones. Not everyone can be lucky. A detachment is set up in each battalion to handle the new intake. The battalion ca commander's deputy heads this, and he is, assist he is assisted by some of the platoon commanders and sergeants. Their task is to turn the recruits into proper soldiers in the course of one month. This is called a young soldier's course. It is a very hard month in a soldier's life. During it, he comes to realize that the sergeant above him is a king, a god, and his military commander. The recruits are subjected to the most elaborate and rigorous disciplinary program. They clean out laboratories with their toothbrushes. They're chased out of bed 20 or 30 times every night under pressure to cut seconds off the time it takes them to dress. Their days are taken up with training exercises, which may last for 16 hours at a stretch. They study their weapons, they are taught military regulations, they learn significance of different stars and insignia on the officer's shoulder boards. At the end of the month, they, are, they fire their weapons for the first time, and then they are paraded to swear the oath of allegiance, knowing that any infringement of this will be punished heavily, even perhaps with a death sentence. After this, the recruit is considered to have become a real soldier. The training detachment is disbanded, and the recruits are distributed amongst the companies and battalions. So this is a actually interesting thing, because in the United States specifically, training is held in a centralized location. So you go to a training battalion, and there is a functioning organ, which is itself a, you know, center of training. Now, in Europe and Russia, it seems that the way they do it is the way they did in old times, which is, okay, you get new recruits, and so what they do is they have a separate training battalion from the division that is responsible for that. That's, like, how do you say, organic to this division. And so this happened also, by the way, in Roman times. There was one training cohort um, 
which was used as a filler for the other tr for the other cohort. So once they're done with training, the training cohort is disbanded and you know, not disbanded, but you know, as they graduate and sent to different co cohorts, they basically become what they are. Now, this kind of gives you a basic understanding of the in process. Uh, it sounds like very much like hardcore what the Marine Corps used to do in Full Metal Jacket. I think this process, this one month process that people talk about, um, is probably the most formative experience that you'll have in your life. It is the place where you'd be sleep deprived, um, quote unquote, traumatized, challenged, and then, and the good training is that it'll break you down and give you the opportunity to show what you're made of and surpass obstacles in your path. And basically over the course of that month of basic training, what you end up being is at the end of the time, a soldier because you have you have made multiple different small victories along the way. Now moving forward, I wanted to talk about like the daily routine of what a conscript is like. Again, this is a very cursory perspective, but I think this is this is how I think the ideal life is like. I think all men should just do military life all their life. But of course, not all men are born to be warriors. But, as you can see, all men can be soldiers. Now, I continue reading, and here we talk about the two-year service and what it's like, etc. Now, I'm reading. Roll on my demob. I wish you all a speedy demob, so demobilization. Make sure you deserve it. They've taken everything else away, but they can't take my demob. Demobilization is as inevitable as the collapse of capitalism. These are sentences you will see scribbled on the wall of any soldier's lavatory. They are cleaned off every day, but they will soon be back in paint, which is still wet. Demobilization comes after two years' service. It is the daydream of every officer and NCO. Excuse me, of every soldier and NCO. From the moment a recruit joins the army, he begins to cross off the days to his demob. He lists the days left on the inside of his belt or ticks them off on a board, a wall, or on the side of his tank's engine compartment. In any military camp, on the backs of the portraits of Marx, Lenin, Brezhnev, Andropov, and Ustetsnov, you will find scores of inscriptions such as 103 Sundays left to my Dima, accompanied by appropriate number of marks, carefully ticked off one by one in ink or pencil or 730 dinners to my demob, and more marks, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to keep on going. But here we go. A soldier's day is split up into a number of periods, or so many minutes each, and this makes it most convenient for him to calculate in minutes. The Soviet soldier reckons that his day lasts just a little bit longer than it does for any other inhabitant on the planet. So, in his calculations, he reckons that a day contains... 1441 minutes instead of the four, 1440 minutes a minute longer than it does for the rest of us a minute is the most convenient division of time for him although he has to count it in seconds too the soldier's second daydream after his demobilization is to be allowed to sleep for 600 minutes theoretically he is allowed 480 minutes of sleep of course one of the scum gets only half of his 
As he moves into a higher caste and becomes more senior, he sleeps longer and longer. A month before his demobilization, a senior soldier holds onto the note above his head, Do not tilt, to be carried out first in case of a fire. Reveille is at 600 hours. Wake up, jump out of bed, trousers on, boots on, run outside for a rapid visit to the lavatory, sprint to the door, which is jammed with people, another sprint, and you're on the road outside, past the sergeants, who are lying in late for the last on parade. By 6.05, the company is already moving briskly along the roads of the military camp, in rain and wind, in hail and snow, just boots and trousers, chests bare, running and PT until 6.40, 35 minutes of really hard physical exercise. Then, the company goes back to the barrack room with 20 minutes to wash and make beds. During this time, the scum have to put and make both their own beds and those of senior soldiers. At 700, there is a morning inspection. The sergeant major spends half an hour on rigorous check of the company's general tidiness, haircuts, contents of pockets, etc. After this, the company falls in, moves off, bawling a song, and marching in time to it, to the dining hall. An attentive observer would notice that the number of soldiers in the company is now greater by a quarter than it was during the PT parade. Actually, when the orderly first shouted, Company, on your feet, at Reveille, by no means everyone jumped hastily out of bed. The most senior of soldiers, those who, with only six months to go before their demob, get up unwillingly and slowly, stretching, swearing quietly to themselves, not joining in the rush to the lavatory or tearing off to the parade. While the rest of the company marches around the corner, they go quietly about their own affairs. One may stretch out under his bed to sleep for another half hour. Others doze behind the long row of greatcoats, which hang from pegs at the wall, and they rest and the rest may tuck themselves away somewhere at the back of the barrack room for a warm pipe from the furnace, furnace room. Whatever they choose to do, they don't turn out for PT with the rest of the company. This is actually really bad discipline, by the way. This is unacceptable. Just because you're on your end status doesn't mean that you should be skipping on PT. Freaking weakness in your body. Now, getting back to it. Eventually, they go and wash, leaving their beds to make, make by the scum. The Soviet army serves a meager breakfast. A soldier is allowed 20 grams of butter a day, but since theoretically 10 of these are used for cooking, there are only 10 grams on his plate. With this, for breakfast, he achieves two slices of black bread, one of white, a bowl of kasha, and a mug of tea with one lump of sugar. Butter and sugar are used as a sort of currency with which to placate one's seniors for yesterday's mistakes or some piece of disrespectful behavior. They are also used as stakes for bets so that many of the soldiers have to hand over their breakfast butter or sugar or both to those who have luckier than them to have been luckier than them at guessing the results of football or hockey matches. There is not much bread, however, but if a soldier somehow manages to get out extra excuse me, get hold of an extra slice, he will always try to make his tiny portion of butter cover it too, so that it is the bread and butter rather than the, just the bread he is eating. Several soldiers from my company once spent a day working in the bakery, and of course they helped themselves to a few loaves, which they shared with other members of their platoon. 
Each of them had 10 or 15 slices of bread to spread his whole butter and is able to eat as much as he wanted for the first time for months. But there was very little butter indeed for each slice. I was not very far away, and seeing how much they enjoyed themselves, I went over and asked if they could tell which of the slices had butter on them. They laughed. <laughs> One held a piece of bread above his head and gently tilted it towards the sun. He answered, his, the answer became clear. A slice on which there was even the smallest scraping of butter reflected the sunlight. Nice. <laughs> but, in any way, so he goes on, he goes on to tell us, like, at 800, there's regimental parade. Then you go and they spend the rest of the day studying. And what's the subject of their study? They go between political training, which is like for their time it's about communism etc for our time if you're in the United States uh, they have what's called a safety brief or other bullshit like diversity training that's uh, woke training that's their political training uh, then they spend time training tactics weapon training drill now drill is close march close order drill so that's like marching uh, you know, going wherever, doing whatever parade decks t type stuff. I think it's really sexy. For whatever reason, my peers didn't think so, but I always loved that shit. When you put your fucking arms, you, you're snapping your rifle, now everyone clicks at the same time, eyes right, happens all at the same time. Man, it's the sexiest and best feeling you'll ever have in your life. Anyway, they go on in technical training. Technical training depends on your job, so technical training for a tanker or a logistician or whatever is case dependent, of course. Weapons of mass destruction and defense against these, so there's a specific training for hazmats, blah blah blah, all this kind of stuff. I'm sure you know about it. It's less... I mean, there is training in the military, but it's less emphasized than it was during the Cold War. Mainly it's focused on uh, biological warfare, so I don't know if you ever see it, but a lot of the ingress into the military's uh, covered by this uh, seer training, so they put you in a room with sea gas and train you how to reseal and seal your your gas mask, how to get in and out. Basically, people end up throwing up, getting fucked up by it. It's pretty funny. Physical training at the end, which is PT. Now, as you can tell, it's very simple. The host of subjects that they focus on and that is the beauty of it and it sounds like from this experience this sounds like Marine Corps boot camp instead of for 13 weeks it's like for two years which is a pretty intense situation uh, and you hear like in the modern military how soft people are oh, I'm gonna kill myself dude like in the Soviet Union man they would just hand you the rope it's like do it bitch you know what I mean like they really don't care and so you'll see that a lot of this depression bullshit or whatever gets wiped away as soon as people do this thing, which is like um, they call them out on their bluff. And if they follow through on their, their you know, bullshit, you know, go kill myself and they kill themselves, well, it's one less motherfucking suicidal person in the gene pool, ain't it? So what ends up happening is that there's a salubrious effect on the genetic pool, but also a salubrious effect to the morale and the hardening of a mind, of a soldier. And so that's probably the most important thing that most people don't understand, is the um, will to constructive cruelty. 
the West, we forgot about this. We think being mean is a bad thing and being nice is a good thing because we think like women. We think emotionally. And in the East, the reason why they're able to suffer and achieve great things is because they're, they ingrained themselves with experiences and trials which demand that of them and they allow you to sink if you can't swim. That's the difference. In the West, we're like, oh my god, this this recruit killed himself in training. Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna do something about... No, dude. Let him die. Let him kill himself. That doesn't sound sexy, but that's the important part because, like, you are not able to... You have to train people to be tough, and that's what a military life is. That's what a soldier's life is, is to go into certain death with a kind of fatalistic resolution, to not let it, your feelings get in the way. And I think a lot of people that are sitting at home, never been in the military, they can learn this too, man. It means going to the gym when you don't want to, when it's fucking cold. It means getting after it. It means stopping a fucking bitch, right? When it's tough. Not losing hope. Keep fighting. But anyway, I, I get carried away here. And um, we get back to the general training regiment. Obviously, I gave you the topics of that training. Now, moving on. Basically, you get up, you work out, you work, slash study, slash do whatever maintenance that you need to do. Weapons training, etc. He kind of goes over that. And then he goes on to Saturday. And Saturday is a working day. And uh, obviously there are atheists in the Soviet Union. So there is no, even though it's a day of rest, it's not dedicated to the church. So people just kind of end up working because that's what they force these guys to do. Now, the training tempo changes a little bit, right? And it starts with this section, and I'm reading now Suvorov. Practice makes perfect. Damn, so true. This is a wise saying which the Soviet army accepts. Accordingly, during his service, every soldier goes through the same cycle of instruction four times. Each of the last of each of these lasts for five months, with one month as a break before the next one begins. During this interval, the soldiers who have completed their service are demobilized and the new intake arrives. In this month, the recruits go through their young soldiers course, the remainder overhaul, and repair equipments and weapons and do maintenance work at barracks, camps, and firing ranges. There are also for various sorts of heavy work. This is not always the same for the armed forces. Sometimes they become laborers on state projects. Then the five-month cycle of instruction begins. All the subjects in the training schedule are covered, but during the first month and the emphasis on the individual training of each soldier, the youngest one learns what they need to do, need to know, and do, while the other one repeats everything for the second, third, or fourth time. As a soldier's service lengthens, the demands he, meet, he must meet increase. A soldier who has just joined may be required to do, for instance, 30 press-ups. One that has served for six months, 40. After a year, he will have done 45. And after 18 months, so someone that's about to be demobilized, 50. The standards require 
increase similarly in every type of activity. Shooting, running, driving military vehicles, resistance to CW, which is sear gas by the way, materials, endurance without an air supply in a tank underwater, etc. And so in the second month, while work continues on the improvement in individual skills, sections, crews, and military teams are set up. In reality, they exist already, since 75% of their members are soldiers who have already served in them for at least six months. The young recruits adapt quickly, for they are made to work for them, work for the whole team. The old members do not exert themselves, but they squeeze enough sweat for 10 out of the new arrivals so as to avoid being accused of idleness themselves and in order not to incur the wrath of their platoon or regimental commander. From the second month, weapon training is no longer individual, but to whole sections. Similarly, the sections, teams, and other basic combat units receive all their tactical and technical and other instructions as groups. At the same time, the members of these sections, teams, and groups learn how to replace one another and how to stand in for their commanders. Submachine guns, excuse me, submachine gunners practice firing machine guns and grenade launchers. Machine gunners learn to drive and service armored personnel carriers. Members of rocket launcher teams are taught how to carry out the duties of the section commander, and so on. Members of tank, gun, mortar, and rocket launcher crews receive similar instruction. The third month is devoted to perfect perfecting unit and, in particular, platoon cohesion. Exercises last for several days, field firing, river crossing, negotiating of obstacles, anti-gas, anti-radiation, treatment for personnel and equipment. The soldiers carry out all these as platoons. During these exercises, section commanders, by the way, a section, we don't use sections in the United States, but a section is roughly analogous to a platoon. It's basically one and a half platoons. There's two sections in a company. Now, continuing on. Then come field firing and other practical exercises lasting for two weeks, each first at company, then at regimental, and finally at divisional level. Two final weeks are taken up with large-scale maneuvers involving armies, fronts, or even complete strategic directions. Uh, the uh, So there are different terminology for the same thing. So an army is like a division-sized element. A front is a combat grouping, which is modern day we have a you know brigade combat teams this is a combat grouping uh which is roughly roughly analogous to like damn uh, theater of operations and then uh strategic direction for the soviets would be like uh what we have uh similarly in the united states which is africom so you know centcom socom uh, you know, and so on. Um, and the idea, what this is, is you basically group all the military assets and intelligence assets within a specific geographical theater. So, for, for instance, AFRICOM, which stands for African Command, has is a group of generals that hang out in this room far away, probably at the Pentagon, um, getting daily wires and uh, video conferences and uh, debriefs as far as different actions taken by different branches of the United States government. Continuing on here back to Suvarov and we're just finishing here. After this is an inspection of all formations which make up the Soviet army is carried out. Checks carried out on individual soldiers, ser sergeants, 
officers, generals, sections, platoons, companies, batteries, bat battalions, regiments, brigades, divisions, and armies. With this, the cycle of instruction is completed. A month is set aside for repair and refurbishment equipment, firing ranges, training grounds, and training centers. In this month, again, the demobilization of time-expired soldiers and the reception of new intakes recruits takes place. This is followed by a repetition of the entire training cycle, individual instruction, and then the wheeled welding together of sections, platoons, companies, battalions, regiments, divisions, and then large-scale exercises. And finally, the inspection. So it goes on over and over again. Now, I kind of like this... Um, model, this repetitive model uh, for training. Uh, many people don't know or understand why it is that... So, okay, let me backtrack here. The soldiers, the martial arts, so, so to speak, the martial science, is easy to understand, which is why I'm able to convey it to you right now, and you're able to learn it on your own. What is difficult is to be able to do it over and over again, to drill it so deep into your mind, so that way when you're at the battlefield, you remember everything, all of your training, as like a second nature. You do it so much, it's just, it's a mechanism that no matter how tired you are, you know, you don't even need to think about it, you just do it. It's like tying your shoes, right? You tie your shoes so many times, you don't even think about it. I just like freaking, you know, look down. I go, I gotta tie my shoe. Look away before you know it's tied. That's how you gotta be with your rifle. Uh, that's how you have to. You have to have a sixth sense developed with your team when you're maneuvering, as they say in combat operations or uh, you know tactical uh, circumstances with your section or platoon or company or whatever. Basically, you have to have done it so many times that you can get a sixth sense for where everyone else will be and where you're going. Now, there's a drawback because in this circumstance, um, the new recruit, there's always going to be a section of the company that has new recruits, and that kind of necessarily drags down uh, the training capacity of a conscript unit, and therein lies the issue and the weakness of, uh, militarily speaking, of conscript service, which is um, basically... In the United States, for instance, we have, okay, basic training, which they do as well. And then we have, you know, combat schools. So, you know, MCT or whatever. Or if you're in the infantry, SOI. And so what ends up happening is that you have a long period of instruction, advanced instruction, to get it. And then once you're sent to a, a you know, standing division or regiment or whatever, you're already trained up. You're already expected to perform. And here, it's hard to do large-scale maneuvers when you always have someone that's kind of still under training. You know what I mean? But it seems that the... As the guy had said, it kind of works out because three-fourths of the troopers are, in fact, trained up, ready to go, and know the whole shebang. And so there's an efficacy to this, and I, I think for what it is, conscript units, you have to understand conscript units are meant to be mobilized only in times of war, um, like significant war. So, for instance, in Russia and the Soviet Union, conscripts were only allowed to be used um, in locations which are home territories. And, of course, there are professional soldier corps, too, in, in the Russian army now. Um, and 
those guys can be sent anywhere, deployed anywhere. They're basically like how the United States military is, is um, organized. But conscript units are different. They're just meant for home defense, kind of like the Swiss Army or when the French Army had a conscription as well. Now, I'm not going to keep on going over this. I think it's important that you get a general gist of what an ideal training regimen looks like. Um, I think the most beautiful thing to see is when a team kind of finally comes comes together. When men who are estranged become part of a unit, you come to know people that are so close uh, to you in training. For instance, I'm still best buds with at least five guys from my original training platoon and ultimately later in my training battalion, etc. And that's true for everyone. It builds camaraderie. It builds fraternity. It builds a certain sense of civic-mindedness. I mean, you read there that they're used in that month off. So they had five months of training, one month off, and during that month they were working, you know, either fixing up a place or they're being sent on a state project. What's a state project? State projects is like building highways, like the ancient Roman legionaries were. And so I think that's that's closer to what America should institute because, yeah, there are issues with, like, the ethnic composition of the United States that will always cause problems. And, in fact, later in this book, uh, the Soviet experience is also multinational, and there are issues with ethnic division within, no matter how many times. And it's funny, the Americans always say that they're the beacon of, oh, racial equality and all this kind of bullshit, but at the end of the day, like, the communists literally punished you with years in prison for racism and yet racism only becomes stronger under those circumstances just like in the Yugoslav war right uh, the civil wars do you guys know that they actually censored all racial uh, you know discussions or hate speech or whatever you want to call it nowadays with like a prison sentence and what ends up happening <clears throat> is that you, instead of allowing people to beef verbally, they don't realize that all they're doing is taking a pressure cooker and then holding the nozzle down until finally the pressure is so great it explodes. And that's exactly what happened in the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, if you look at the ethnic composition of, you know, the Soviet Union and how it broke apart, it fell, it fell apart along literally ethnic lines. I mean... To this day, people like the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis, there used to be independent SSRs within the Soviet Union, which is like they used to be separate like states within the United States, you know what I'm saying? And now they're still killing each other. The Tajiks and the Kyrgyzstanis and the, the Turkmenistanis and all the stands, they're killing each other all the time. Um, you gotta understand that like that's an uh, that's something that's hard to overcome but to a degree can be negotiated through common experience of fraternity like this like common training common enemies common culture and even then it won't go away I mean even Vietnam and the modern military it's still as, as strange as ethnic groups it's hard it's it's a difficult thing and the the Romans faced this issue too and the way they did it is basically by raising legions whose composition were predominantly of one region or the other not that really they kind of banked on that it just ended up happening that way but it made for a more stable 
Empire. Uh, but that's going too far down a rabbit hole I don't want to go to. The point being is that it develops a citizen body that is more united than it would be if it weren't. So, you know, without this common training and discipline, it would, it, it would be... I think there would be a, a lot less ethnic strife within the United States specifically. Um, later on, it kind of improves your character. There's a certain soldierly quality uh, that you're, that's imparted into you um, from the military. And I think it better arms you and guards you against this kind of effeminacy that you see from people that have never gone in. Now, I think it's really easy for people that have never gone in to get over this effeminacy. It's just, it's just a little bit like more difficult. You have to do some digging, but luckily I'm providing you with a certain aura ethos that you can be like, all right, that's how you should act, you know, certain attitudes, and then you can just get over it, right? A certain frankness. It hardens you, military service, go back to it. Creates loyalty, obviously, fidelity to your political cause. So if you see, for instance, um, you know, when you suffer for something, um, you know, psychologists pathologize this as Stockholm Syndrome, right? They say, it's, oh, it's just Stockholm Syndrome. But reality is uh, everything you believe in has to come with cost. It has to have skin in the game. So people are not invested in the United States because they have never suffered for the United States. Your parents love you because they had to suffer for you. Suffering is a good thing. It just has to be meaningful. It has to have every... What's Nietzsche say? Every every cause is hollowed by a good war. What he means is that ultimately the sacrament, the sacrifice, is what consecrates a cause. I'm not going to get too far into it, but that's the general vibe. I'll talk about more about this in the future and actually cite some psychological studies that I want you guys to follow up on and read. Now, uh, obviously, leadership qualities. There are very few quali times in, you know, civilian life that you have leadership situations. Um, you have more managerial training here, and yeah, that has its own value and stuff. But that's not fundamentally a human being value. That's that's kind of a bugman value. You know, you oh, you're good at managing slaves. Good, good, good job. But that's not what you're doing in uh, the military. You're doing true leadership. You're talking to men women, I suppose now, um, on a true and fair fundamental level, candid, you're, you care about them. Uh, you know, one of the founding documents in the Marine Corps is um, basically every platoon commander has to be a father to his men, have a kindred and faithful relationship with, with your soldiers, with your Marines, etc., and still have that authority figure, still be harsh, but give tough love. You know what I mean? It's not just tough or just, like, mommy coddling. It's tough love. We're bringing back tough love, okay? Tough love is good for you. That's what the military is. Teamwork, obviously. And I won't go any further than that, but I really highly recommend reading this book, at least for the last three or four chapters. We certainly will revi revisit this specific book and talk about the conscript patterns and different you know ideas that we can have but I think I've talked too much read too much and I definitely need a drink so without further ado 
Let's blow this popsicle stand. because we have already run into a lot of time here. Now, for this transmission, I want you to take the time, buy this book off of Amazon. It's like 10 bucks or something. Uh, the uh, challenge is to read this book. It's called Inside the Soviet Army by Viktor Suvorov. Very much a worthwhile read. Um, it's very fun reading, and the parts that you don't like, you can easily skip over and read the most pertinent parts and then be done with the book. It's not something that you have to read as like a prose all the way through. Uh, now, for a physical exercise, you will do a three mile run with your hands behind your back, and that is all. Now, as far as, let's see, ah yes, spiritually. Now, we talked about civic works here, and I think there's a lot of importance as far as building civic projects. But here in the United States, we're weak, weak-bodied. We only do things for money, like a dirty nose. And so I think it's important that you do something for free. Offer an elderly neighbor help, assistance, you know, mow their fucking lawn. Other cases, step up, be a man. How about you... You know, if you're a younger guy, help out, you know, a food kitchen or a food pantry. It's not about helping scumbags, okay? Because a lot of the people, I worked there before for, like, community service and shit. I won't go into it. 
Um, I may or may not have gotten into a series of bar fights. Anyway, point being is, these people are shitbags. That's fine. But the idea is, you expose yourself to helping out your fellow countrymen, even the sons of bitches, right? He may be a son of a bitch, but he's my son of a bitch. And it'll tr teach you that sacrament, that investment. Now, um... Aside from everything else, just one last note about the Russo-Ukrainian war. I think it's important to say that I, when I go over these things, it has a lot to do with observing from a callous perspective, from a third perspective, the war and its technique and stuff. And of course, I believe that war and the soldier's life is the most, the highest form of human life. However, it is important to note the tragedy. The tragedy of falling for an unsacred cause. For a stupid cause. And um, for me, a lot of people will say, oh, well, mine is not the reason why, mine's to do or die, right? Which is the charge of the Light Brigade. I, I understand that, and that is an ethos, but I, I remember seeing this video of, I mean, literally hundreds of Ukrainians and Russians dead in the field. And, you know, it, it, like, there needs to be a why. And a, a, a very good why. Like, the reason why World War I uh, led to such defeatist and apathetic perspectives and culture, for instance, in the book uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, that is a thoroughly defeatist and apathetic book. Uh, you know, anti-war. Why? Because the First World War was waged on like very bad premises. You know, petty jingoistic nationalism. And don't get me wrong, I am, if anything, an ultra-nationalist, right? But fighting... I mean, can can the First World War even, like, for people that weren't involved directly in the Serbian assassination of Franz Joseph I, like, can they even really understand, like, how it is that they ended up there? And that's what the cir circumstance that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are finding themselves in, right? So the Ukrainians are defending against a foreign force, which they're trying to buttress with the idea of, like, either racist ideas of, uh, you know, whatever... Again, I'm not against it. I'm just saying that's the premise. Um, and the idea of economic benefits that would be construed to them um, if they joined the EU. I think that's the best argument that I had uh, to, to, to basically leave the thumb of the Russians. But I think it's kind of weird because it's like, okay, you've kind of you're out of the pot into the fire kind of situation because now you're under the thumb of the United States and Israel. So it's like, what? How, how did you win? I don't understand. But that's their opinion. They, they're entitled to their opinion. They're the ones fighting, dying for it. So, you know, who am I to judge that? And then also, in the correlation, the Russian perspective. What is the Russian perspective? We have to fight the Ukrainians who are our close cultural brothers for for the average man it's unclear for people that actually think about this it's obviously very clear for people like Putin 
denying NATO and the United States an outpost right on their front is a a a phenomenon which is is like existential. It's an existential threat and thus justifies his his intervention in the Ukraine. However, like how can you justify that to yourself if you're just an average Joe going and fighting and dying by the hundreds in Ukraine? For what exactly? What exactly? There is no strong sentiment. It's because the Russian Federation is also a bastion of evil in the country in the world. Because it, it fundamentally is hinged on one thing, which is money now. You know, they took the liberalism too far. And um, they, they don't have an ethos. And to quote the uh, great Lebowski, uh, you know, say what you want about the, ten- the tenets of National Socialism, but at least it's an ethos, man. And I'm sure that you could say the same about communism as well. And, you know, we're... the the liberals I don't want to trail off here but the liberals say that we live in a post ideological world and maybe that is true but that is the substance that moves our spirits and gives our soul meaning and I just hope that if any of y'all go fight on either side you have that meaning and fixed in your soul and you know what to do when you know rounds come downrange and like your buddy's dead and stuff you don't want to go there half-heartedly, jovially going to war. Don't be a kid. Anyway. This is General Lance. This is Lance's Legion. Signing off.
Just you waste, rise up. 